The views expressed on TMI with Aldous Tyler are not necessarily those of WSUMFM, the University of Wisconsin in Madison, or the Board of Regents. Oh no, my friends, the views for the next hour are all mine. for Friday, December 18th, 2020. Man, oh man, what a week. So, we start off the week on Monday, the 14th, with the Electoral College going ahead and actually voting. Now, in case you're not clear, a quick quick renewal of the concept. Usually, we don't pay much attention to the Electoral College because the big election we pay attention to is when we, the people, put our popular vote in as far as who we want to be uh, president of the United States. But you know what? That's wonderful. We don't actually do it. We don't actually choose who's president. What we're doing is we're choosing the slates of electors who then on the 14th of December get together and place their vote for who president will be. Now, that's got all sorts of potential problems to it, and I'll explore those other times, I guess, because there's something else that happened. You see, we were all very busy watching what the Electoral College was going to do this year just because of all of the hullabaloo stirred up by Trump and his minions um, like Giuliani, etc. When it comes to challenges to this election, we were all kind of just waiting, just waiting for the Electoral College to go ahead and put its votes in so that it was absolutely final and official that Joe Biden had been elected um, president uh, for the upcoming term. So because of that, there wasn't much attention paid to the fact that the very day the Electoral College formally awarded Joe Biden the presidency, the Wisconsin Supreme Court only narrowly rejected a bid by the Trump campaign to throw out over 200,000 absentee ballots in Wisconsin's two most Democratic counties, Milwaukee County and Dane County. It was a four to three decision by what's generally considered the most polarized and politically driven high court in the country right now. Now, interestingly enough, how did this happen? Well, one of the four conservative justices um, on the court, Brian Hagedorn, joined 
the three more liberal colleagues in rejecting the Trump petition, mostly because it addressed alleged improper local election practices that were apparent long before balloting occurred. So there's a legal doctrine. It's called latches. Um, And what it involves is undue delay in asserting a legal right or privilege. Um, And when you violate this legal doctrine, when basically it's shown that you knew for a long time that this is going to be a problem for you or that you weren't going to like this particular legal doctrine to that was in play and you didn't challenge it and didn't challenge it and didn't challenge it. And now you're challenging it when it's, you know, after the fact, there's a legal doctrine out there, this latches doctrine that says, you know what? Screw you, pal. You had your chance. That's pretty much what happened. That was the doctrine that was used by four of the seven Supreme Court justices in Wisconsin to deny this. But in dissent, three of the conservative justices, the three, the three of those, um, in an opinion written by Chief Justice Patience uh, Roggensack, um, agreed with the Trump campaign's claims that election officials in Dane and Milwaukee counties had violated state laws by instructing election clerks to correct small errors in the addresses listed for witnesses of absentee ballot signatures. They also objected to Dane County accepting absentee ballots at a pre-election Democracy in the Park event in Madison uh, here, regarding it as a form of unauthorized in, uh, early in-person voting. The dissenters did not address a third Trump claim that voters claiming indefinitely confined status due to the COVID-19 pandemic were illegally allowed to evade photo ID requirements. Uh, The justices just weren't even going to mess with that one. Now, here's what's really remarkable. We were one vote away from having Wisconsin's 10 electoral college votes suddenly flipped to Trump or at the very least, disqualified from Biden's column. One vote away. That was Jill Karofsky. Uh, Why I'm saying that that way is because in April, Jill Karofsky beat the conservative incumbent justice that she was up against to take a seat on the highest court in Wisconsin. And if she hadn't been there, then Brian Hagedorn would have been a voice in the wild when it came to his conservative members, there would have been four other conservatives saying, nope, we're good. And we here in Wisconsin would have been wholly disenfranchised. The fact that the majority of us voted to uh, not have the electoral college votes for the state of Wisconsin go to Trump because we wanted him out would have been completely and utterly just not paid attention to. But thank goodness we did get Karofsky in there. If you ever wonder just how vital it is that even state Supreme Courts uh, are paid attention to, here you go. Um, An election law expert, uh, Rick Hazen, observed that the dissenters, the the three conservatives who would have ruled uh, with a four vote had we not gotten Karofsky in there, The dissenters strangely did not tell us exactly what remedy they believe the court should have given Trump. But if you assume they would have tossed out most of the ballots they considered improperly witnessed or collected, they probably would have flipped Wisconsin. 
Now, why is that assumption there? Well, because Biden carried the state by just over 20,000 votes. Um, and the amount of electoral uh, ballots they were looking at flipping were, generally speaking, a lot more than that. Now, since such a ruling would have triggered equal protection concerns, as some of the practices used in Dane and Milwaukee counties may have benefited Trump in Republican jurisdictions the suit did not address, it's possible federal courts would have intervened to flip Wisconsin back to Biden, maybe, but it would have caused quite the crisis. It's very arguable that the Wisconsin Supreme Court came one vote from reducing the Democrats' electoral vote count from 362.96 just hours before the electors cast their ballots. Now, would that have meant that Trump would have won the election? No, no, we were not the only state in play here. But it would certainly have cheered Trump's battered and bruised legal team and perhaps stiffened President Trump's determination to fight his defeat until Inauguration Day even though the local election practices in question in Wisconsin constituted at most technical irregularities and not the fraud that Team Trump keeps alleging. The decision's a reminder of the significance of the Wisconsin Supreme Court election in April. You know, um, it's really interesting. I mean, Jill Karofsky, who has been outspokenly critical of the Trump campaign's petition during oral arguments, suggesting its focus on Dania Milwaukee County's smacks of racism, she managed to upset incumbent conservative Daniel Kelly back in April. And uh, that outcome was widely attributed to backlash against voter suppression efforts by Wisconsin Republicans. So perhaps in this latest decision, it's a case of what goes around comes around. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. I imagine that right now you're feeling a bit like Alice. Tumbling down the rabbit hole. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. Yes. On WSUM 91.7 FM in Madison. Hallelujah. My Savior, man. No one personal Jesus Christ. It's your cure for the common media. Airing every Friday at 5 p.m. Central. Podcasting every Monday evening. I like it. I think he likes it. Want some more? Oh, yes. Check out TMI, TMI, TMI.com for podcasts and all things TMI. I know Kung Fu. Show me.
TMI with Aldous Tyler. Now, a lot of people don't know that there are a spectacular array of things that are not actually written anywhere in law, but are just common practice that, uh, you know, basically there are gentlemen's agreements, if you will, and just traditions that are followed that have absolutely nothing to do with anything written in the Constitution, or even for that matter, just in the uh, very flexible and changeable bylaws 
that governs certain institutions in our country. For example, you may know that one of the biggest nightmares that we've had, um, politically speaking, is Mitch McConnell being in charge of the Senate. And why is he in charge? Well, because the Republican Party has held the majority in the Senate. He's the majority leader, so he gets to say, uh, as the presiding member, he gets to say uh, what votes go to the floor, what votes don't. He's been able to sit on and essentially kill bill after bill after bill that the House has put out there. Um, It's been a mess. It's been a mess. And right now, if we don't get Georgia both of the Senate seats on January 5th, He's going to remain the majority leader. Oh, my God. We are going to have at least another two years, at least, um, until the next Senate elections happen, where he's going to absolutely be the majority leader. It's going to be a nightmare continuing. And, you know, Biden doesn't fight much, right? But wait a minute. What if I told you? (laughs) Here we go with the good old. What if I told you that never actually happened in the matrix? Um, What if I told you that Mitch McConnell is not the presiding member of the Senate? No, (laughs) not anywhere that's officially written down. He's not. That is a gentleman's agreement and can be disregarded just that easily. Now, in a guest column um, by Lisa Marie Kerr over at uh, the Prevail blog by Jeff Olier, um, she actually outlines this pretty well, uh, saying America's Congress is now wholly disabled by the whim of one man elected in one state. Mitch McConnell has rendered the Senate a legislative nullity. He's functionally amputated an entire chamber of Congress, and he's used that mutilation to erase the House as well. Hundreds of needed bills languish undebated, unvoted, pandemic relief, election protection, immigration, and tax reform. These urgent House passed priorities never reach the Senate floor. While Trump blithely cages infants and doles out needed medicines and hospital beds to his crime cronies. But whether or not the runoff elections in Georgia go the way of the Democratic Party. I've got good news for you. After January 20th, 2021, Mitch McConnell could be a much smaller problem than he has been. See, gridlock is a relatively new crisis in the uh, in the uh, U.S. Congress. This might be hard to believe, but it is. Um, the Senate used to work better and was designed to work better. Once seated as the Senate's constitutional presiding officer, Vice President Kamala Harris can break gridlock by recognizing any senator to bring any House-passed bill to the floor. She can do that without altering any Senate rule uh, with a procedural vote or anything, and she should. So Vice President Harris will become the president of the Senate automatically under Article 1, Section 3 which also recognizes that the Senate can choose their other officers, including majority and minority leaders. But Article 1, Section 3 does not give such other officers the vice president's power to preside over the Senate, which includes the power of priority recognition, that is, allowing a senator to speak on the Senate floor and thus move a bill into debate. Now, uh, until about, I don't know, 
70 or so years ago, the vice president used the presiding officer's power of priority recognition to develop the Senate into the world's greatest deliberative body, cultivating a forum for open debate and compromise that transcended partisan lines. When the House passed a bill, any senator recognized by the vice president, who would be acting as the presiding officer, could move it to the floor be seconded by another senator, and proceed into debate and a vote. Now, the standing rules of the Senate give its presiding officer abundant power, but they do not require that the majority leader to you know is that presiding officer. In other words, the standing rules of the Senate say that the presiding officer have a, have a lot of power and a lot of duties, but they say nothing about the majority leading being that presiding officer. Delegation of priority recognition from the vice president to the majority leader is not required by any written rule of the Senate or by any of its standing orders even. As vice presidents took on greater executive duties, they just simply began delegating the uh, chair of presiding officer to chosen senators. The Senate's official history acknowledges that this informal practice, as it's called, crystallized into ongoing delegation to the majority leader about 1937, thus creating an emperor without clothes, so to speak. Now, delegation of presiding power has become a habit that no one's questioning. Almost like, you know, cigarette smoking back in the 60s. But, but the malignant cancer of delegation to Mitch McConnell is not required by the Constitution. And it's arguable that when delegation is chronically abused to block bills from the Senate floor, it is the duty of the vice president to reclaim presiding power. Obstructing is not presiding. It's blocking the air from our legislative lungs. Now you can ask, wouldn't reclamation of the vice president's constitutional presiding power require a change in the rules of the Senate? Doesn't that need a two-thirds majority vote, which we don't have, even if we get both Georgia seats? No, no, no. Delegation of the vice president's constitutional presiding power is found nowhere in the Senate rules. Um, rule 23, privilege of the floor only determines who can be recognized by the presiding officer, not who can act as that presiding officer. Hence, the proposed solution is simply having Vice President Harris recognize in her capacity as presiding officer, a senator to move a House passed bill. It would pose no conflict with Rule 23, nor would it conflict with any other standing rule because the majority and minority leaders would retain their non-presiding powers. And any spurious points of order blocking such action could be rejected by the vice president herself as the presiding officer. Now, reclaiming the presiding power would not require the vice president to attend every session or strip her of her executive duties. She would remain free to delegate on an individual basis to a senator chosen to move a specific bill forward. Uh, she could even restore presiding power to the majority leader on condition that it not be further abused. I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't trust Mitch McConnell any further than I could throw him, but there you go. Um, original Senate bills could still move through the committee for preliminary analysis pursuant to existing Senate rules. Motions to proceed and for cloture would still be governed by Senate Manual Section 74, Standing Order. 
uh, amendments to such House bills would still proceed in conference under Cleve's Manual of the Law by precedents incorporated in the Senate Manual, Section 200, etc. Can courts, you know, would it be possible for the courts to stop the vice president from reclaiming her power to preside on behalf of the nation? Nope. Who would have the standing to sue? Only the majority leader would. And would a court recognize any right to retain presiding power by a majority leader? No, no. The constitutional power granted to the vice president to preside over the Senate may not be limited by the Senate's own internal deliberations. That just don't happen. So how would Americans benefit if our nationally elected vice president followed this suggestion to break gridlock? thus allowing House-passed bills and others to come to the floor. It wouldn't be guaranteeing every bill's passage by any means, especially if the GOP retains a bare majority, but it would make compromise much more likely through markup and reconciliation. The number of opposing votes may change when those votes must be cast on record after robust open debate. Public disdain and electoral consequences may deter public blocking of a bill that senators are willing to block behind closed doors. And open floor votes and debate would eliminate the travesty of a single man elected by a single state's voters blocking legislation that the vast majority of Americans demand. Okay, imagine, for example, how different our Supreme Court might look if Merrick Garland's nomination had been moved to the floor and debated. Many Republicans supported him in the past. The seat probably would have been his if the presiding power had been reclaimed by then-Vice President Biden. Imagine how glowing our national picture might have been if bills with genuine bipartisan support, like immigration reform, election protection, had passed both chambers during Obama's administration through a robust process of debate, amendment, and markup presided over by a nationally elected vice president, rather than dying on the bleak desk of a man who proudly declares himself America's Grim Reaper. In short, the Senate's historic role as world's greatest deliberative body requires that open deliberation take place as described in the Constitution, not behind closed doors and certainly not inside the head of Mitch McConnell, one man elected by only 1.2 million voters in the 26th most populous state of the Union. Does our vice president have a duty to take back presiding power on behalf of the American people? It, you could absolutely argue she does. In a pandemic where 3,000 lives per day hang in the balance, that duty is clear. Once seated, she should exercise or at the very least delegate her constitutional presiding power only in a manner that allows American policy to move forward. Our entire Article I legislative power has been usurped by Mitch McConnell, contrary to the Constitution's organizing principle of self-government. Now that we have a Madam Vice President who has made noises of wanting to do combat on our uh, behalf, we're looking for that nightmare to end. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back.
millions of years. Mankind lived just like the animals. And something happened which unleashed the power of our imagination. We weren't in the talk. There's a silence surrounding me. I can't seem to think straight. Thank you.
And we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. So, for the past couple days, Sasha Abramsky, over at Truthout, has been publishing a series on the uneven burdens of COVID-19 and how it's affecting more, uh, more harshly on some people than others. The latest part of this series that she's been writing on is entitled Inadequate COVID Stimulus is Pushing Cities and States to Make Draconian Cuts. And she says, For the last nine months, as the COVID crisis has deepened, cities and states have stared down a growing financial apocalypse. In the first bloom of the crisis, those cities and states that had managed to put aside extra dollars during nearly a decade of economic growth used up their hard-won rainy day funds. Then they began juggling numbers, using accounting tricks to lower current spending obligations without actually reducing jobs and services. And then, when they ran through their grab bag of tricks, they had to begin cutting services. For cities that hadn't experienced the sorts of booms that had generated such wealth in, say, New York or San Francisco in recent years, already hard times began uh, suddenly to be much harder. Just before the pandemic shut U.S. cities down in March, researchers with the Brookings Institute reported that many mid-sized metro areas were performing far worse economically than were the megacities, with their local economies and labor markets growing at a lower rate than their larger neighbors, and with poverty declining at a slower rate. In the latter part of the decade, uh, 2010 to 2020, population growth, and with it economic muscle, in many of the U.S.'s largest metropolises, also slowed significantly, and that was a study done just before COVID hit. When COVID hit, all the vulnerabilities that had been growing, largely unnoticed beneath much of the U.S.'s urban surface for several years, burst forth into the open. The math, it's pretty straightforward. As tourism, hotels, restaurants, entertainment venues, ticket sales to sports events, conventions, and so forth dry up, in the face of the pandemic, government revenues implode. And less jobs, less consumption means less income tax, less sales tax revenues. And that, in turn, means cuts to jobs and services at the city and state level. All of this feeds into a downward cycle by further reducing tax revenues and consumption and further reducing the amount of money that cash-strapped states can send to their cities, most of which are barred by state laws from running deficits from one year to the next. Oh yes, by the way, if um, you wonder why uh, more states haven't attempted their own version of Medicare for All... Um, it's because they, they need to apply a little bit more imagination than, say, the federal government would have to in order to attempt it. Because the federal government is allowed to run at a debt and a deficit, no problem. But individual states, um, there are currently only two out of 50 states and D.C. There are currently only two that don't have any um, either laws or uh, constitutional amendments against uh, running a deficit. Um, and that's Wyoming and South Dakota two states which you probably won't be uh, expecting to see trying to run universal health care for their citizenry. Um, every other one has to be balanced budget year after year, either uh, weak or strong regulations thereof, but most of them strong and most of them constitutional for that state. It's, um, it's rough. Anyway, back to this. In April and May, one and a half million workers were either laid off or furloughed 
by state and local governments around the country. Back then, the National League of Cities found that 2,100 cities were facing budget shortfalls and strategizing ways to impose cuts to make up for these lost dollars. Uh, Since then, that number has almost certainly increased. It was at least in part in response to this cascading fiscal crisis that the House of Representatives passed their first HEROES Act, you remember way back then in April, which would have freed up trillions of dollars in federal spending to counter the economic impact of the pandemic. Several hundred billion dollars of that would have been used to backstop city, county, and state governments so as to minimize the scale of the cuts. It would have protected education, transport infrastructure, and the jobs that go with that, uh, cultural institutions, libraries, as well as more prosaic but vital functions like firefighting, park maintenance, garbage collection, all that stuff. But with GOP lawmakers increasingly reluctant to sign off on another big spending package, especially one that was seen, rightly or wrongly, by their base to disproportionately benefit Democratic-leaning big cities that had shut down large swaths of their economy as a public health response, the HEROES Act wasn't taken up by the GOP-controlled Senate. Predictably, the result has been catastrophic for cities and states, and the scale of the cuts envisioned at the year's end surpasses anything proposed back in the spring. A report released in early December here by Boston University's Initiative on Cities found that only 13% of mayors in the country believed small businesses in their jurisdictions had received enough federal relief. Large numbers believed that their rental markets would leave residents particularly vulnerable for the next couple of years and that public transport and cultural institutions would remain deeply vulnerable through 2021. A fully 45% of these mayors believed they would be forced into dramatic cuts to schools over the coming year. Six out of 10 believed that even after vaccines were distributed, downtown office space in their cities would remain less desirable. And since those economic cores provide a large part of their tax base, that would mean continued long-term economic pain for cities. Los Angeles, for example, uh, it's lived under varying degrees of lockdown and has seen vast parts of its economy shuttered for the entire duration of the pandemic, is facing a $650 million budget deficit for the coming fiscal year. And city analysts predict that number will increase before the health crisis ends. As a result, LA's city government is proposing the elimination of more than 800 jobs, most of them in the police department. Well... If you want to defund the police, start there, I guess. Now, that's less than the nearly 2,000 jobs initially proposed for the acts, but still a crushing blow uh, to the city, uh, prior, sorry, the country's second largest city. What Los Angeles is proposing isn't a carefully thought through defund the police strategy, by the way, with investments in social services and mental health services to offset that and other public expenditures replacing the dollars cut from the police force. Instead, It's just a reaction to the fact they don't have money, a desperate cost-saving measure. And even with these cuts, the city's still going to have to impose uh, furloughs, equal to about 10% of workers' wages on thousands of additional employees. There's just no way to interpret this other than uh, L.A. is facing a huge reduction in public services. In Jacksonville, Florida, both the Public Defender's Office and the State Attorney's Office are facing cuts of millions of dollars, impacting the ability of the city over the coming years to hold trials in a timely manner. Good old Chicago, 
Nearby here, Mayor Lori Lightfoot is proposing the elimination of up to 500 city jobs and the furloughing of thousands of additional workers. At the same time, the Windy City is trying to plug a burgeoning hole in the city's budget with emergency increases to property taxes and gas sales taxes. The crisis runs the gamut, from the biggest public institutions in the country to some of the smallest. In New York, the Metropolitan Transportation Authority, uh, which runs public transit in New York City, is facing an astonishing 12 billion dollar shortfall in coming years and it's estimating that it'll have to cut services by 40 percent if it doesn't receive a huge cash injection from the federal government in the coming weeks meanwhile pew charitable trusts is reported on small water utility districts heading into insolvency due to the large number of customers who could no longer afford to pay their water bills in some rural areas of North Carolina, the researchers found, up to half of water customers were behind on their bills as a result of the pandemic and the economic dislocation that has accompanied it. Pretty much pick any local jurisdiction anywhere in the country and draconian cuts to services are on the table as we head into 2021. Belatedly, Congress seems to be acknowledging the scale of the crisis. Seven months after the House passed the HEROES Act and the Senate promptly tabled the bill, legislators are finally scrambling to craft a drastically watered-down relief package worth about $908 billion, about one-third of the HEROES Act, so as to avoid an economic cliff over which tens of millions of impoverished Americans could topple during the Christmas week. That's next week. When existing benefits passed in earlier pandemic relief packages run out, and to partially shore up collapsing city and state services. The proposals being pushed by a handful of moderate middle senators are, of course, better than nothing, but they have huge shortfalls. Analysts at the Brookings Institute and elsewhere have calculated that states and cities are facing a financial gap of roughly half a trillion dollars over the coming years. But the package proposed by the moderate middle of these last days of 2020 includes only about $160 billion in assistance to these uh, entities. And even that is $160 billion more than Mitch McConnell and most of the Republican leadership want. McConnell has, after all, spent much of the past year opportunistically railing against bailouts of Democratic states' pension systems, of big city social programs, of union-protected jobs and wages, and so on. At one point earlier this year, McConnell, playing to his conservative base, even stated that he would be quite content to see states go bankrupt. With or without congressional intervention, at this point, much of the damage has already been done. Cities and states have already begun slashing vital public services, and local leaders have already started implementing huge budget cuts on the assumption that Congress won't step up to the plate with the financial assistance they need. It's all a fittingly dysfunctional, cruel coda to a particularly brutal year. You're listening to TMI with Aldous Tyler. We'll be right back. All right, back to your hits. So uh, what do you want to hear now? We will be victorious. <laughs> well, all right then. <laughs> Look out.
And we're back, TMI, with Aldous Tyler. If you pull out the old dictionary, you'll find that Merriam-Webster defines the word treason as the offense of attempting by overt acts to overthrow the government of the state to which the offender owes allegiance. There are 126 Republican members of the House of Representatives who did just that in broad daylight this past week. Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton's absurd attempt to overthrow the 2020 elections was flatly rejected last Friday night by the Supreme Court of the United States. Coming hard on the heels of that court's equally unequivocal dismissal of a Pennsylvania case seeking similar ends, you'd think this legal sideshow is over now, right? (laughs) No. In any event, Paxton's doomed Supreme Court case seeking to undo the legally wrought will of the people was buttressed by Donald Trump himself, more than a dozen attorneys general, and those 126 Republican House members who offered amicus briefs to the case. Many of the names of these democracy-despising Republican representatives are unknown outside their own districts. Robert Aderholt, for example, of Alabama, or Rick Crawford of Arkansas. Uh, There's Fred Keller of Pennsylvania, but there are more than a few doozies on the list. Minority leader Kevin McCarthy jumped in late, joining Minority Whip Steve Scalise and Freedom Caucus leader Jim Jordan. They represent the rancid cream of the GOP crop in that chamber, and one of their Democratic colleagues is having none of it. Long-serving Representative Bill Pascrell of New Jersey has requested that House Speaker Nancy Pelosi refuse to seat the 126 Republican House members who jumped on the Paxton bandwagon and tried to overthrow a legal election. Stated simply, Pascal argues, the men and women who would act to tear the United States government apart cannot serve as members of Congress. He continues, these lawsuits seeking to obliterate public confidence in our democratic system by invalidating the clear results of the 2020 presidential election undoubtedly attack the text and spirit of the Constitution, which each member swears to support and defend. In conclusion, Pascal says, Consequently, I call on you, Ms. Pelosi, to exercise the power of your offices to evaluate steps you can take to address these constitutional violations this Congress, and, if possible, refuse to seat in the 117th Congress any members elect seeking to make Donald Trump an unelected dictator. Now, Pascrell's legal basis for this request is Section 3 of the 14th Amendment, often referred to as the Disqualification Clause. It says, No person shall be a senator or representative in Congress or elector of president and vice president or hold any office, civil or military, under the United States or under any state who, having previously taken an oath as a member of Congress or as an officer of the United States or as a member of any state legislature or as an executive or judicial officer of any state to support the Constitution of the United States, shall have engaged in insurrection or rebellion against the same or given aid or comfort to the enemies thereof. Now, that's a lot of words to basically say, hey, look, if you've sworn an oath to uphold the Constitution um, and you're talking about congressional people or, or the other offices mentioned, and after that you've gone and, and helped support insurrection or rebellion against the Constitution or given aid and comfort to the enemies of it, you should not be here. You should not be in 
the seat of Congress. And it's pretty straightforward, right? Yet, at a moment when the nation's electors are working to close the deal on the 2020 election, even as threats against them are shutting down government buildings, it seems far-fetched to believe that Speaker Nancy Pelosi will run with this ball anytime soon. Beyond distributing the newly available COVID-19 vaccine, the job of government in the immediate moment is to hold things together until we pass the January 6th Electoral College certification and drag this rusted heap across the inauguration day finish line. Now, after that, the dragon will be gone from under the mountain. All those Republicans who hitch their wagons to Trump's scaly tail will be forced to stand alone, even when together, and explain themselves to a damaged, furious nation. And I emphasize stand because the House should not seat them absent an apology for their reckless anti-democratic behavior. Will Speaker Pelosi heed this call? Her office put out a Dear Colleague letter on Friday, which read in part, As the Pennsylvania Attorney General stated in a brief filed against this lawsuit, the court should not abide this seditious abuse of the judicial process and should send a clear and unmistakable signal that such abuse must never be replicated. As members of Congress, we take a solemn oath to support and defend the Constitution. Republicans are subverting the Constitution by their reckless and fruitless assault on our democracy, which threatens to seriously erode public trust in our most sacred democratic institutions and to set back our progress on the urgent challenges ahead. Is the Speaker telling Representative Pascrell something with this fiery rhetoric or merely offering a sop? Draw your own conclusions. I find Pascrell's complaint and argument entirely fitting and true, but I'm all but certain it'll come to nothing. We'll find out on January 3rd when Pelosi goes to seat the 117th Congress. In the meantime, if you want to see the world for what it is, remember, you have to first close your eyes, find a center within yourself, and then you'll be ready to see the world for what it is. And all you will need to do is simply... 